You are listening to the In Perspective Weekly Podcast with Bob Branco and Peter Outchul. Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco for episode 293, dated Friday, January 20th, 2023. And again, this is episode 293. With us, as always... Peter Alchul. Peter. Nothing of great excitement. It's a typical winter day in Columbia, Missouri. We're getting ready for the Chiefs to play tomorrow afternoon. It's the last great football weekend of the year as far as I'm concerned. So that's what we're aiming for. Well, if the Chiefs win, there'll be another great football weekend, wouldn't they? Wouldn't yes, it be? But, no. But, that, but then there are only two games and not four. So, uh, this is the last, this is the last week of where there are two games on, on a given day. Oh, well, that's true too. You're absolutely yeah. right about that. Yeah. Okay, so in the meantime, let me give a shout-out to one of our faithful listeners. I'm going to do that today, and that's Raymond Irving of Rhode Island. Raymond, thank you very much for listening to In Perspective. I also want to thank other people for making it possible for our show to be aired. We start out with our media sources. Thank you for airing us when you do. I also want to give a shout-out to Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place. Who are who posts our in perspective shows on greeting door number fifteen? Thank you very much to Tom and Lynn for doing that. I also want to thank Raymond Gay, our producer, for making it possible for our show to be clean and edited. Thank you so much. And finally, Jacqueline Sylvia, our website designer, she archives our shows on my website, which is www.brancoevents.com. Just go there. And find In Perspective Podcasts. Click on them and you will see most of our archive programs from latest to earliest. Merci, Jackie. I'm going to take a page out of Peter's book because I like the wording that he used in his own promo of today's program. How the healthcare and the blind mix. I like that. Except I want to add one more thing to that. I think it goes beyond the blind. I think we're talking about all disabilities and I even think that we'll be talking about those patients who may have similar needs than those of us with disabilities who, who run into the same issues. I don't think this topic is limited exclusively to persons with disabilities, but I don't want to steal anybody else's thunder right now. I'll let them speak. We have with us today, Audrey, could you pronounce your last? Oh, Demet. Audrey Demet. Am I, am I saying it yes. right? Yes, that's it. Demet. Yes. Okay. Audrey is a retired nurse, and she is visually impaired at the moment, from what I understand. Thank you for being with us. And we also have other panelists that are going to be sharing this topic with us today as well. Glenn Grimes, Robert Sollers, and Joe McKeezy. Welcome to In Perspective. Audrey. Oh, go ahead, Peter. You can ask Audrey your question. Okay, that's thank you, Bob. So, Audrey, I'd like to start with you. Um, Could you briefly talk about your experiences uh, as a nurse Sort of how you got started, what kind of work you did, what your experiences were as a nurse, and whatever else you want to talk about. Sure. Okay. Thank you, Peter. Uh, so I graduated from nursing school, and shortly after that, I began to have problems with my vision. And I actually um, didn't get a diagnosis for about five years and it turned out to be retinitis pigmentosa. And actually, I had a couple of wrong diagnoses, which does happen a lot. And, and I'm, you know, in my 60s. So it was way back in the day. 
Um, but I soon realized, you know, that this was going to be a problem. It was going to impact my ability to do nursing. And um, I really hung in there. I did work for over 30 years. And as I lost vision, I sort of adapted the environments that I was working in. I always knew when it got to be too much of a challenge and would, um, you know, change my my workplace. So I started in the NICU with premature babies in the ICU. Um, it was a very intense environment and a very changing, fast-paced environment. And after a few years of that, I, I, I knew I couldn't stay there. Uh, I didn't feel like I was safe. And of course, this whole time, I was not telling anybody that I was visually impaired. <laughs> um, so, you know, I would move down to the next, I, I say down because you know, each time I actually had to sort of carve out my career in a unique way. Um, so I would change environments. You know, I went to a slower paced hospital floors and then I went to doctor's offices and then a freestanding clinic. And in my final years, I was a school nurse. But don't let that fool you because school nursing is really quite intense these days as well. And I finally finished my career. Well, I, yeah, I guess my direct patient care career um, as a school nurse. And I took my guide dog to school the last two years of working there. I, I worked for over 30 years. And actually, I still work. I do health education writing now. So I'm a contract writer for visionaware.org and the Mississippi State University NRTC I write continuing education materials and edit and produce articles and such. So I'm st I still have my kind of my fingers in the pot, so to speak. And um, I've worked with every age group and um, st started with little babies and then did pediatrics and ended up in school age children. And um, now I work with older adults mostly. So there you go. So, Audrey, before we, we go on to the other panel, I, I'm curious about something. You, you talked about um, your your issues, uh, well, well, your issues of, of uh, diagnosis with the visual impairment, and I'm sort of curious to know your your sort of experience with healthcare as it as it as it involved that particular issue. In other words, you know, here you're working. You talked about sort of misdiagnosis. You sort of talked about, uh, you know, what what was your experience as sort of a patient as you were going through all this nursing stuff. Well, um, you know, I felt like the misdiagnoses were really a function of, um, what we, what people, what doctors knew and understood about retinitis pigmentosa at the time. And, um, at my, actually my first diagnosis was MS, multiple sclerosis, because they thought that I had optic neuritis. And, um, that proved not to be true. And so then they kind of moved down the line and it, and, you know, the knowledge has been expanded greatly. I mean, you think you think when you go to the doctor that doctors are going to know everything and you're going to always get a clean, nice diagnosis. And, you know, it just doesn't happen. It's not a realistic expectation um, because there are so many variables. There's limitations with testing, um, you know, that sort of thing. So I think we have to go into when we interface with healthcare, we have to understand, you know, that Doctors are fallible. 
the system is fallible. Diagnoses aren't always exact and available to us. Sometimes a diagnosis is what we call a diagnosis of exclusion. And that means you eliminate all the other possibilities and then you finally say, okay, well, may, it must be this. And you end up, you know, with a label. Um, you know, I, I had cone rod dystrophy. There were, there were several things that they thought it was. And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I didn't feel angry or frustrated or anything about that because I knew it was just the limits of what, what the doctors knew and understood at the time. Um, and there weren't any treatments for those things anyway. And there wasn't one for RP and there's not one for RP. So it's not like it prolonged getting the right care or anything like that. You know, it didn't prevent me from getting what I needed. It just, you know, it just, just was what it was. And yeah. yeah. Okay. No, that's, that's really useful. Thank you, Audrey. Okay. So um the other three panelists who we have, can you sort of talk about your, Experiences briefly, uh, your experiences with hospitals and or the healthcare system. Well, like let's start, start. Let's start with Glenn. 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 I don't hear Glenn. I I was muted. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Glenn. Uh. Yeah. No. I I hate when you're in a hospital. I mean, certain procedures like colonoscopy or something. They they won't let you stay the night, but they want you to have someone take you home. And they don't mean like a ride or a cab or, well, I don't know, like a family member. Or, I don't have a family, so I don't exactly, a church volunteer. I don't know. I can never, I've been putting off my colonoscopy for over two years because the virus came. And then, you know, and now it's, I mean, it's so level off, but it's... So on those lines, Glenn, I want to ask Audrey a question. Audrey, do you find that this trend is sort of replacing the extended hospital stays? In other words, less lengthy hospital stays and more, you need somebody to accompany you home same day. Is that, are they connected? Yes, I would say so. But I think it's always been that way. Even, you know, if you, if you're discharged on the third post-op day, um, it's sort of protocol just to, Make sure that people are going to have help at home. It depends on, you know, what the procedure is or what the surgery was or how debilitating the surgery might be or the types of medications you're going to be put on, such as pain medications that will disorient you or make you unstable on your feet. I mean, there's a lot of factors involved and it's not an unreasonable requirement or, you know, it, it really technically AMA, go, you leave the hospital AMA um, against medical advice. So you're going to say you're going to take the cab because that's your option and you feel confident that you can do that. Well, it's okay. They're going to give you some papers to sign. It is your right. It is your option. But I would caution people because, you know, for one thing, there's a lot that can happen after anesthesia, like the first 24 hours, to even I would even say the first 72 hours. People can have adverse reactions to anesthesia, to antibiotics that they may have been given IV, um, to the, to the medication.
medications themselves. And I will just relate to you uh, a, a story of my own. Um, during COVID, I did have back surgery and it was done on an outpatient basis. I had rods and screws. It was a big surgery. And I was in the hospital for less than 24 hours. My husband dropped me off at the front door and picked me up at the front door the next, well, really it, less than 24 hours. And their only thing was, of course, I had someone that was picking me up, but um, I had to show them that I could walk before I could go. But, you know, there's not time. You know, my big problem was kicking people to the curb so quickly. And now COVID was a different situation. The surgeon was very intent on saying to me, we do not want you to get COVID, um, especially not from the hospital, but to have to go home and deal with COVID and rehab this very big surgery. So we want to get you out of here and get you safe. And I agreed with that. However, I went home and I really had a terrible time for about three days. The medications made me hallucinate. Um, I had uncontrolled pain where I had to keep, I called the doctor several times on call because I, my pain was just not under control. I had never been in so much pain in all my life. Now, if you'd been, if I'd stayed in the hospital, that's the one thing that they would have done. They, they would have gotten my post-op pain under control before you discharge somebody home. So that sort of answers my loaded question. Wouldn't it be better? If there's this concern about the 72 hours that the patient remain in the hospital. Well, they are learning. There's, there's a couple of variables here. Obviously insurance calls a lot of the shots now and they do what's called a 23 hour admission where um, insurance will pay. If it's just one hour less than 24 hours, insurance um, will only pay the hospital. So much, right? So they're, they're encouraging doctors to do this in, in part. It's, it's a negotiation really. And sometimes doctors, you know, you, but they've also learned that they can do this and people do pretty well going home earlier and getting you out of the hospital can be beneficial in many ways. One, you're less likely to get what we call nosocomial infections, which are hospital-borne infections. And infection rates have absolutely soared over the years, you know, with MRSA and some of the other drug-resistant um, bacteria and things that get into post-op wounds and into people's lungs. And, you know, these are serious post-op complications. So, you know, the research, they've done research to see, you know, how, you know, how soon can you kick somebody after, uh, let's say a hip replacement or a knee replacement, which by the way, I was shocked that they aneurysm or is going to have a brain aneurysm removed on an outpatient basis. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It, 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 it's, a, it's a little bit scary, but there are uh, many of those situations. They will line up home health care or a visiting nurse. Somebody else is going to support you when you get home. Uh-huh. And honestly, you know, hospitals are terrible places to be. You do not rest. You you don't eat properly. You don't move around as freely. And those things can be really important in terms of healing and rehabilitation and, you know, even your um, mental health. So uh, uh, before, before we move on to, I want to uh, ask Bob, thank you for this, Aubrey. This is Audrey. This is great. Um, oh, I, had I, I think Glenn had something to say first, yeah. Peter. Go ahead, Glenn. 
Go ahead, Glenn. Well, I have two things. Number one, is this all come down to the L word liability? And number two, I had a situation in reverse one time where the hospital wouldn't let me leave against medical advice, even though my girlfriend offered to sign a waiver and take care of me to her house. My, my, I had a mop fire in my apartment and they wanted, they didn't want me to go home until my landlord said that it was safe to go home. I said, well, good luck for that. It's a Sunday. It's President's Day weekend. It's a Sunday afternoon. I'm going to be here till Christmas, but they tried from 11 in the morning till four. It took me five hours. The landlord finally said he can go to, he can go home. What was the, what was the threat at home? Well, the, the hospital wanted to know that my apartment was safe to return to. Because there was, what was the problem? Did you say? Mop. I, I had a mop. My homemaker in her infinite wisdom didn't tell me she had the dry mop upside down leaning over the gas jet and it's, and it turned the dry mop, which in the dry mop yeah. and the wet mop both caught, they caught okay. fire. Okay. Okay. So you did, you had a little apartment fire and yeah. Okay. Well, yes, because you know, it, it is about liability, but it's also an, an illegitimate concern for you when you're, you're under the influence of medications. You're not going to make good judgment. I wasn't. Well, okay. I wasn't under any medication. Okay. So what my was vitals it? were fine. Right. Well, my, you know, my. You do. You always do have the right. You can, you know, um, and, and you can also. Yeah, they wouldn't. Always, you can always call in the hospital social worker to advocate for you to help you make other arrangements that are acceptable to the staff. The staff well, can push and, and blow a lot of, you know, woohoo and make well, it Well, you know what happened? This happened early on a Sunday morning at 5 o'clock. So there was no social worker around. They took me to Brigham and Women's in Boston. I hate that hospital. I was there too. They wouldn't let me leave till 3 in the afternoon, even though my girlfriend said, you know, he can come to my house. And they said, well, how do we know once you leave, you'll go, you'll go, you won't go home. This she was. I said we can sign a waiver. It benefits you, but they wouldn't do it. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's hard because. Well, yes. Underlying this, I will say that I do believe there's bias against people with disabilities in terms of what yeah, nurses certainly may is. Yeah, may may think that you're capable of and caring for yourself in such a situation. You know, right. but. What they don't, you know, and, and sometimes it's about advocating it. Well, it's always about advocating for ourselves and helping them to understand this is what I, I'm skilled at taking care of myself. I know how to do that. I've lived with this my whole life. Whatever they need to know to understand your level of blindness mm-hmm. and your abilities. And, um, and it is, let me just say too, that it is not unusual for a discharge to be delayed like that for whatever reason. Sometimes it's just simply that the doctor didn't come in and sign off on the papers yet. So there are protocols. That's what they said. Right. There are protocols that just have to be followed because of lawsuits. You know, it is a very, we're a very litigious society. And so the hospitals are going to play defense and yes, they're going to cover their, you know, CYA. Peter, I know you have a question for Audra. Yeah, I want to, I want to, let's go, let's hear from Robert and or Joe next. Thank you. Thank you, Glenn. 
Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Hi, guys. This is Joe. Uh, Bob, can you hear me? I'm unmuted. Perfectly. I'm at a little restaurant. A little, little noisy. I apologize. Audrey, privilege to speak with you. I'm blind. Joe McKeezy, 75 years old. I think you're partially missing the point. Let me explain what happened to me. But Glenn is correct. They won't let you leave. And these hospital advocates do nothing. I went to the ER five times. I went to an eye doctor. I was misdiagnosed. I went through the advocacy. It took over three months. She said, go somewhere else. We did no wrong. Well, I did go somewhere else before that. And they offered, and they diagnosed me with a shrunken eye. I forgot what the term is. It's a small 10-minute surgery. I had one good experience in the hospital, actually two when I had COVID. And when I was um, I had uh, endoscopy, Bob knows this, I recorded my surgery. They're very cold. You don't need to know who's, who's going to be with you in the operating room. The first time, they were extremely nice. But the Salem Hospital and these other hospitals just don't do things right. The advocate won't do anything, Audrey. I think it's getting to the point where we need lawyers. Glenn, they wouldn't let him leave no matter what he said. That's what we're trying to get across to you. So, so I've Joe, now got eye about, surgery. Tell us about, wasn't there a time when they wanted you to go home and you had nobody to look after you? because you Yes, were yes, yes. I live alone, Audrey. I've got no family. They've dumped me off, but that's beside the point. Uh, I couldn't go anywhere because I had no one with me, and I had a hard time getting someone to go to the hospital with me and bring me home. They said, if you don't have anyone, you can't even come in and have the work done regardless of how serious it is. I said, you don't understand. I don't have a family. They have staff there. They have volunteers. There's no reason they can't have assign someone to go with you and help you. That's what we're trying to say. I think Glenn made a good point. Advocates don't do a darn thing. They work for the hospital. They're getting paid, in my opinion. Sorry I'm so bitter, guys. Mm. If you want to ask any questions, I'll answer, and then I'll mute my... Yeah. Well, let me just say I'm really sorry that you've had these um, really horrific... Five times, Audrey. Five times medical diagnosis until they found out what's wrong with my eye. It's been over a year. I finally had surgery. Ask Bob. The hospital, Mass General, Salem Hospital, none of those guys in Mass Ioneer, they didn't know anything. They gave me wrong diagnosis. There are too many specialties. Okay, sorry, go on. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with you about that. That can be some of the problem when our, our care is so chopped up because we go to so many different specialists and the specialists don't communicate and, uh, you know, it's very truncated care and too many specialists. That's what I'm saying. Right, right. And Too the, many cooks in the stew. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that yeah Glenn, be, that's that good. That can be true. And, you know, you would have every right to to pursue a lawsuit. If you feel like there's malpractice or something that's gone, you know, and you have documentation and proof of it, then, hey, you know, go for it. Pick your battles and go for I it. I call the lawyer, Audrey. They won't touch these cases unless you're dead. I've got a book by, and Bob, I hope he gets them on. Larry Schlachter, I'll be brief. It's called Malpractice. He talks about killing patients and other things and what goes on and how mistakes are made and they cover it up. Believe me, that yeah, won't, yeah. unless you're very lucky. So, so I want to, I want to sort of um, ask Audrey a question because there is a lot of anger out there, not just among disabled folks, but about people in general about healthcare. I mean, I'm sure we all have stories. And what I'd like you to do, if you can, Audrey, is sort of talk about what I understand to be the craziness of the healthcare system uh, as as nurses experience it. 
uh, it, it, you know, uh, sort of the understaff. I don't want to put words in your mouth. So mm-hmm. talk about sort of from your perspective, the sort of life of a nurse these days in a hospital. What is it like to be a nurse dealing with the kinds of things that, that are being talked about and other things? Right, right. Well, I, I can only say that even back in the day when I was in the hospital, it is a very stressful job. It's very demanding physically and mentally. We nurses don't always have the power or the voice that they, they need sometimes to advocate for patients. And I can only imagine that things are 10 times more fast paced now, shortages of nurses. Um, it's, you know, becoming a, a, a job that nobody wants to do, which is a yeah. very scary thing. And they've also kind of dumbed down. Well, hospitals have gone through different phases that back in the day, we used to have a medical assistant, an LPN and RN to work a, let's say a hallway of patients. Then they decided, okay, we're, we're going to just do away with MAs and LPNs. We're going to have an all RN staff and, and let the RNs just do total patient care, which means all the, you know, grunt work and stuff, which meant the RNs then didn't have time to really do the, the important nursing stuff. You know, by the time you're, you know, emptying wastebaskets and wiping butts, you, you know, you, you, you're late passing out your medications, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So we've gone through all these different phases, studies after studies that, you know, tried to sort of figure out what was the best staffing patterns to use, you know, how to keep uh, nurses happy, how to keep them efficient. You know, we went through like the 12 hour shifts and then it was, you know, all these manipulations of the types of shifts, you know, seven to three and then three to 11 and then seven A to seven P and you know, all in an attempt, it's always an attempt to see, you know, are there fewer um, medication errors because the nurses aren't as overworked or tired or, you know, so they track all this and the stressors on the jobs. And, you know, there's there's a lot of problems. There are a lot of problems in healthcare right now. And I agree with everybody. It's it, it you know, what it trickles down to are these types of experience that the patient and the consumer is having. And I say consumer because I, I want you all to remember that you are a consumer of a service. That's what we are. That's I'm right. Glad you said that. Uh, I want I just wanted to thank you, Audrey. And oh, if any, if, if anybody, I hope we can get in contact because I've got a few more of the things to say, but I just want to say, Audrey, the advocates don't listen. The hospital doesn't listen. Glenn is correct. Uh, the way they treat some of the patients and nurses sometimes are better than the doctors. They forced me to have a COVID test today, which only keep me in the ER. I had to get a, a waiver not to wear masks because I can't wear them. They bother me. There's so many things that are going on now. It's atrocious. These CEOs are making tons of money. Hospitals are too big. Uh, oh, oh, lady yeah. owns like six or seven. Uh, we need smaller hospitals and more we nurses. Also, and now I'll go on mute. Thank I want to thank, very much, Joe. thank I everybody. Do when they turn your hands I, I do. Oh, yes, Audrey, I forgot one last thing. When I had eye surgery, they tied my hands down, and they were told not to put me to sleep. The doctor wasn't happy. They didn't listen to him. I said, Dr. Glavis, I'll never go back there again. He says, I'll talk to them. We'll take you somewhere else if you ever need work. This is the kind of nonsense that goes on. 
They don't know how to deal with problems. They take a shortcut. Paralyze we, and tie his hands. We down. need to hear the from the other panel. Okay, okay, thank you so much, uh, Robert Solis is Robert. also with us. And Robert, I know you have testimony, so go right ahead. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Whatever you say. <laughs> go ahead, Robert. One, one thing to, for Peter, though, as long as the Chiefs are playing, Peter, it's always a football weekend. That's Sorry. true. Okay. Anyway, my wife was, was a former nurse herself. And, but there's been times when I was in the hospital where they didn't listen to me. And I tell them that, uh, no, the first thing is being diabetic is that, uh, I'm a brittle diabetic. They don't give me enough insulin. They give me insulin at the wrong times and they don't listen to anything you say about how much insulin you need. Oh, you only need this much. Well, you know, my blood sugar stayed high. And after I got get out of the hospital, it takes me a good three weeks to bring down my blood sugar levels from the up from the upper 100s, lower 200s, because I never got enough. You know, I only got one shot instead of the uh, two or three that I'm supposed to have every day. Can I interrupt you for a moment? Sure. Um, it's very likely, you know, being hospitalized is a huge stressor on your body. And then on top of whatever you're being hospitalized for, so whatever illness or surgery or whatever was going on, that is what will knock out your insulin and your balance of, with your blood sugars. It's likely that they were giving you insulin in an IV if you had an IV. You may have been getting insulin in a different way. But during the whole course of an illness or hospitalization and for many weeks afterwards, it does take a while to get your body and your and your blood sugars back into their normal place. Now, and that wouldn't be that you can't really fault that you know, in terms of the hospital or what the doctor's orders are. Now, you, you know, patients need to understand that they can negotiate these things with their doctors, but the doctors and hospitalists are really, um, it, it may not have been your normal way of treating your diabetes, but it's treating diabetes in a person who is undergoing all the stress of a hospitalization, an illness, or a surgery. So, I understand, I understand that, Audrey. But what they don't, what the diabetic educators are telling the nurses and the doctors that, oh no, he doesn't need that much. And I'm, you know, they were giving me two units of insulin when my blood sugar was 175. And that wasn't nearly enough. Mm-hmm. Okay. When I'm at home, okay, I, you know, and, and of course I'm laying flat on my back. I'm not going to be using any energy or dumping sugar. So I need a little, just a tad bit more, mm-hmm. but. When I'm at home, you know, I take my Atlantis every day, twice a day, 20 units. Mm-hmm. All right. And there's, there's times I'll be over 300 with my blood sugars at home. Mm-hmm. I'll take 10 units of Humalog and my 20 units of Atlantis, which is, you know, would be normal. One time I'll drop down into the fifties uh, or sixties, which is fine. That I, I, I've adjusted to that. But there's been other times it only drops me to 150 for no reason. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Well, yeah. You know, and again, it, 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 it can, it can be that stress or illness 
factor, you know, where your your blood sugars are all over the place and unpredictable because there are these extenuating circumstances. So your life at home is going to be different than I'll I'll go along with that, too. But they don't you know, they don't the diabetic educators say, no, this is what the book says you need. Uh-huh. Nothing about what I need. Nothing about how brittle I can be. See the, okay? and, and, and the other thing too that both Joe and uh, Glenn were saying about the social workers or advocates or whatever, they argue with they argue with me every single time that no 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 the the hospital's right the doctor's right you don't need this you don't need that we can't do anything for you mm-hmm. every that, single time yeah that's really so frustrating you so you feel like you don't have a voice in your own care. Yeah, unless I do, unless I do what usually works, which is bluff and bluster. And by bluff and bluster, I mean I get mad, I yell, and I tell them exactly what I'm going to do after I get, you know, and no violence. I don't do that, uh, obviously, because that's what I do for a living. I know better. But the point being is that I tell them, you know, I'm going to turn you in for this, that, something else. Mm -hmm. You know, and usually when I do that, I get all the action I need. Right. But with yeah. three shifts of nurses and the medical assistants and everybody else, and I was getting it with uh, shots, not through the um, IV. Okay. I've been fortunate never not to have it through the IV because I've never been that high while I've been in a hospital, fortunately. But mm-hmm. the last time I was in there, I um, was in there for an overflow of fluid in my lungs. There was nothing wrong. I just built up fluid in my lungs, and they can't figure out why. I was there for three or four days, and they never could figure out why I had all this fluid. Yeah. But they still only gave me, you know, I was up. I was moving around, even with just um, the one leg. I was moving around as much as I possibly could because I didn't have everything I needed to to walk. But, uh, you know, and they still wouldn't give me enough insulin. And, yeah, what, 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 what I find really disturbing about these examples is it, it uh, and Audrey, you said it really well. It, it, this is a super stressful environment for everybody involved. People are not at their best at listening to, mm-hmm. to, to each other. They're not at their best communicating effectively. Uh, you know, the fact that, um, you know, that you have to bluster to get heard strikes me as just bizarre. Mm-hmm. Just strikes me as bizarre. And, and, and um, you know, and one of the things I've read in my sort of perusal of, of 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 healthcare literature is the whole bedside manner thing is so important because of what we're talking about. And you know, once you get in a spiral of not being heard, it tends to get worse and worse until something drastic, you know, something stops it. And usually, the stopping is something like a really careful uh, listener as of a healthcare professional, or or what Robert did is threaten, you know, uh, you know, the, whatever he threatened. Mm-hmm. And it, I wish it weren't this chaotic, you know. Well, so I, I will say this. There's, you know, nurses are often, you know, bound by what the doctor's orders are. And a lot of these orders, like post-op orders, are sort of, um, oh, you know, one size fits all. Like, you know, if you go in for gallbladder, your post-op orders are going to look like most everybody else's with a few little tweaks, you know, if you have diabetes and such. but. One of the way I think one of the ways that you people could address this is actually before the hospitalization, when you're seeing your doctors in their offices and in a pre-op visit, 
you bring this up and you say, I want to manage my diabetes, um, you know, of course, you know, with let's let's talk about this because it's been a problem in the past and I want some say in this. So, um, you know, the the young inexperienced nurse comes in and, you know, talks me into or she's just following a doctor's order that's sort of a, you know, one size fits all order. Um. So, yes, I mean, talk, just talking things through before surgery and, and trying to anticipate what all these things are going to be that are going to cause a problem so that your doctor knows, look, I am a proactive patient. I am an advocate for myself. I want things done correctly, and I want to be a part of the decision-making. I, You know, this is my body. This is my body. Yes. We have 20 minutes to go, so I would like at some point to bring our participants uh, into the, the discussion. The, the time is coming to do it now, I think, Bob. Okay. So, Ray, do we have any hands raised? Uh, sorry. Um, we have Beth. I believe it's Beth from New Mexico. You are up first. Hi, Beth. Welcome to the discussion about health care. Yes, Audrey, I wanted to ask you, okay, I had a problem a few years ago. I I am an epileptic. I haven't had a seizure since 2005. I was on Dilantin, but at uh, at one time I got a what they call the blood toxicity issue. The, bottle, the body was not utilizing the Dilantin. I went to the ER because I felt terrible. And... Um, so they they brought it down, and then they gave me a new medication. Then they thought I should go to rehab. Okay, I was only supposed to be there at the max, maybe a month or two weeks. Now I'm finding out I could have done this at home. But rehab, you uh, the Medicaid, the um, facility saw Medicaid dollars. They didn't want to read anything to me. Uh, oh, just sign here, and then, well, don't you trust us and stuff? I stayed in there, like, about three years trying to get out. Um, what? What? Yeah, because they, yeah. No, no. This They would not, they would not help me with anything. These social workers would not listen. Uh, there was a conflict of interest that the social worker had a, she were also worked for a guardianship agency that they wanted uh, she was trying to refer people to, and um, it was only by <laughs> the skin of my teeth and by the idea that I got ACB involved um, because nobody from my state, they would not give my family any information. Mm. In fact, even when um, yeah, when my daughter came back from overseas, she said, I want to know about my mom. Oh, we can't give out that information. It's HIPAA, and she said, I just want to know if she's dead or alive. Okay, she's alive. Thank you. Uh-huh. This, and, yeah, um, so this, this, is, this really sounds awful, and I don't, you know, of course, know the whole situation. And I, So I have a great I, mistrust of the healthcare system because yeah, I yeah. found out that especially if these people are a different culture than you, and they think they know more than you, and you're an, an Audrey, older can I say woman. something? 
Can I say something? I have yes. the same thing. They're misusing the HIPAA law. So we yes. need legal help. They're misusing it. They should have given your basic information. That's it. Right. They hang up on you. They're rude. They're nasty. And I oh, just told you guys. Yeah. I, had to put I didn't think standing. HIPAA applied. I didn't think HIPAA applied to relatives. It, it does. It doesn't, apply. Bob. It, it does apply. Um, but Jane, or I don't know. I can't remember. Beth, Beth, um, Beth. Beth. Beth, you, there's a form. I mean, you could have, they could, should have offered this to you and you can list the people that you give permission to release information to. And I had her listed. Her name's Genevieve, yeah. but because everybody has cell phones and she changed her cell phone number when she went away and then she came back. They pretended they acted dumb, like they didn't know who she was. Yeah, they well, do that all the time. They do yeah, that all the time, yeah. Well, this is actually a travesty. I mean, and I don't really quite understand because you would think Medicaid would have wanted you out of that hospital suit as soon as possible because of the dollar signs. But well, I know it was a, it was a rehab, it was a rehab place and I don't know what they were. Yeah, they don't, they told me I have Medicare and they told me they were going to help me apply for Medicaid. I said, yeah. I don't really need it, mm-hmm. but I think they were signing things. In fact, uh, right before I got out of there, yeah. they tried yeah, to say I that I couldn't a, handle my money. I know it was a rehab well, facility because you wouldn't spend three years in a hospital. Yeah. So right. And one other thing. Can I say one other thing, Bob and, and, and Beth? When I signed my paper for the surgery, he didn't read the whole thing. He just mumbled it. There's a lot of stuff he got to sign. Mm-hmm. I didn't, they had yeah, me they sign one paper. Yeah. That's not how you yeah. treat people. There, no, there is something no, wrong that, with these people. That's against the law because you, you are, you do not have informed consent when they do that. And they're rushing because they got to go to the next patient, but it is unacceptable. Right. It's unacceptable. And, um, the American with Disabilities Act speaks to this. And, and there's, so what happened? Well, there's a part in the Americans with Disabilities Act called effective communication. And this even applies if you are the, if the family member advocating for a patient, um, and is a blind person that it, American Disabilities Act still covers you even when you're not the patient, but you are the, the caregiver who is blind. Audrey, I do. Well, Audrey, one brief, one briefie, Bob, okay, one briefie. I called a, a ADA and they never got back to me. I called the law center, whatever it is, boss, the, the city law, and they won't, wouldn't even touch it. Disability law, they won't do anything. So the whole thing stinks and I'm not blaming right. you. Okay, now well, I'll leave Audrey, myself. Before, before we get to our next participant, Audrey, would I be taking a big risk if I used the magic words in this whole thing? Short-staffed. Well, it truly is a problem. It is the reality. We have, burnt, especially these COVID and post-COVID years where so many nurses have left the profession, and not just nurses, you know. Yep, doctors, the, social yeah, workers, everybody. Whole, yeah. Right, yeah. right. It's because, you know, hospitals are becoming such a scary place to work. But, um, no, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's just like when you go to a restaurant now and, you know, service is not what it used to be because everybody is short-staffed. You know, the problem. Yeah, but now, Audrey, now, Audrey, you're almost scared to go to the doctor or to the hospital now because, will they stick you in a nursing home again just because they think and that you're blind and. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because they think that you're blind and you can't do it. If I can't do it, how can they do it? And they're blind. You know, that's what I don't like. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Beth. I do want Beth, to move on to our yeah, next Yeah, we got to move you. on. But thank you for all that. Yeah. Ray? Uh, next up is someone on an iPhone. That's all they're listed at. So, Mr. or Ms. iPhone? Hi. Hi. Yes. <laughs> this is this is uh, Renee Pavlis. How's everybody hey, doing Hey, Renee. Today? What's going on? Hey, Renee. On? How are you? How are you? All right. Hi, well, good. I have a... I have a kind of different perspective to this conversation okay and some, and some people may not understand uh or or appreciate what i have to say but i really believe it and there's not everybody who's who can take on certain responsibilities for their care or their life in ways that others can and i think we need and i'm gonna have to hold on Okay, I had to turn my speech off on my phone. Um, I'm concerned about cooperation between medical staff and clients or patients. I'm concerned from both ends because sometimes our emotions or our feelings get ahead of us mm-hmm. and we react on those and it's really hard to find a compromise. And with the climate of the way the medical system is and become over the last few years, it's taking responsibility for our own care, but it's also taking responsibility for our own feelings or our own, uh, the troubles that we have gone through and how we process them and how we make peace with them or how we accept them or don't accept them. So I think this is a, a a double bind kind of thing. So I think as people with disabilities, you know, sometimes it's really hard to to tell people what we need and how we need it. And we don't always have advocates that understand our needs. But on the other hand, to give up trying or to give up finding so, a solution or an answer is not good anyway for anybody. Because it is about us, but it's about the people who deal with us professionally also. So I, I guess I have just a, a very different opinion about this in some ways. And I've had times when people have assumed, you know, uh, medical care and whatever else. But I think respect is a really important thing. And sometimes when we're frustrated and stressed and angry and sad, we have trouble respecting other people's and boundaries. Yeah, I think I think that's fair, uh, Audrey. Yeah, I, I think it's a very uh, emotionally charged situation when you are in the hospital. You're feeling vulnerable. You are vulnerable. The staff is overworked and stressed, and so this this does make for a very reactive environment. And um, especially if you've had bad experiences and you come in with those, you know, bad experiences, you know, branded on you. So you're kind of going, coming in expecting it. You're coming with a fight. You're coming with an attitude or, you know, whatever. Um, I, you know, it, it, there does have to be some cooperation. You know, you have to participate in your care. You do have to advocate for yourself. You, and the best time to do it, I think, is before the hospital admission. Now, you can't always do that because some happen, you know, before you are uh, unexpectedly. But... You, I think we do have to kind of hone our skills of communication 
and hold the doctors and the staff to a standard of communication. And listen, the ADA, I, I would carry that clause in there and say, look, here's, here's the code on effective communication. You cannot just um, hand me papers without no, anybody reading them to me and expect me to sign them. I will not do that. Sorry if it's inconvenient and slowing down your, your pace here, but this is what you're going to need to, to care for me as a patient. And I'm demanding it because it's my right. Um, and I, I, and we don't have to do that with a bad attitude. I think she has a good point in saying that, you know, we have to tone ourselves down, be calm, be reasonable, educate them and just have your boundaries and say, you know, like I've, I've even had them say, uh, I'm in a waiting area and they want to come out and they say, okay, well, we'll just read it to you. And I say, no, not, not here. It's not private. That's a violation of HIPAA. So is there some place that we can go to be private? And you just keep, you know, coming back, knowing your rights. It's, it's important to know your rights and, and stand up for yourself but i you you lose everybody kind of loses when it becomes ugly right audrey and bob may i just say one one more quickie thing and then i'll go back to mute i go right ahead the anesthesiologist wouldn't even tell me his background or anything about himself and i was reading in it but you have a right to know whether he's a conflict of interest business contact he was very rude the second anesthesiologist the russian guy so I threw him out. I said, look, you're not working on me. Get out of here. Okay. Some of these people, Audrey, don't care. We need somebody at that hospital that is when you outside say, Joe, the system. Joe, when you yes. say conflict of interest, what do you mean by that? When I say what, I didn't hear you. The stupid screen Con- reader was conflict speaking. Of just- conflict of interest. What does that mean? Um it. Oh, I can't. Can someone explain that word? Peter, can well, you no, explain no, that no, conflict? Joe, Joe. Joe, I'm not asking you to explain the word. I'm asking you, what did you mean when you talked about the anesthesia? I meant that they're they're involved with the hospital and they're not really advocating for you. They're in that position because they're getting paid by the hospital. We need people that are outside the system that work there on a separate basis and aren't getting paid by the hospital. That'll be there when disability people are brought in and brought and say, "This is what you need to do. This is how you do it." We need some people with authority, and there seems to be no one. They said, if you don't like it, you can leave. And I left because they were so rude and arrogant to me. The first anesthesiologist was beautiful. And now I'll go back to mute. Thanks, Audrey. All right. Ray, do we have any other callers? Thank you, Renee. Thank you very much. Who's next? Sharon. Sharon. Go ahead, Sharon. I want to go in the the record. Yes, this is Karen. Hold on, Karen. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's okay. okay. Um, so I want to go in the direction that I think it was Renee was going. Um, I think we do well to remember that we're dealing with people and that, that, um, yes, we have to stand up for, for what we need, but honey gets a lot quicker <laughs> done than vinegar and mm-hmm. you get a reputation as a patient pretty quickly mm-hmm. one way or the other. Um, the other thing that I'm thinking is that I think it behooves us now to to expect, unfortunately, that when we go to the ER or the hospital, especially when it's not a pre-planned one, that we're going to have chaos. Um, and 
to have that expectation. And that sounds kind of weird. Like you can't say, um, it should be this way. Well, it isn't. And we're not going to be able to fix that. And so, uh, I, I just, the other, the final thing is that I, I had actually a couple of good experiences in the hospital when I was really glad that I was there. I was, I was, I knew I couldn't be at home and, um, it wasn't pleasant to be there, but I was just grateful for the care that there was there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, there are, there are places in the world where they don't have hospitals at all. Yeah. So just remember that. Thank you. Sharon, before Thank you, you disappear, much, Sharon. Sharon, before you disappear, uh, were you the one who, who sent that message to the, I did. Uh, yeah, did. Could you talk about that experience a little bit? Because I think that's really relevant to what we're talking about today. About, right. you know, you, you needed certain material, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I'm, I'm going to be having a, a minor procedure, um, out, outpatient, uh, and I got sent in the, a printed, um, you know, uh, in a snail mail instructions mm-hmm. as to what to do to prepare. It wasn't a colonoscopy. I know what to do with that. But anyway, and I had asked for another electronic format and people initially were acting like well we don't have that and I I said well this didn't get done on the typewriter you know so I went to the patient experience team for Reliant Medical which is where I get my care and they really I don't think they understood it but I went I called again two weeks ago Later, the other day, and I finally got a call from the gastroenterologist saying, we're going to put it in Braille for you. And I said, well, you know, that's not even necessary because it'll take too long. They were going to order it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> have somebody do it, you know. So after a couple of attempts, I have it now as a PDF and they attached it in my chart, which is the patient mm-hmm. portal. And right. the, the woman that I eventually talked with who did it was lovely about it. Um, but, and I said, you know, I'm so glad you did this, but I think what needs to happen is that this needs to be offered and understood when somebody else comes along. Cause right. I don't really think that they understood that they could scan the material into a document and do it that way. You know, yeah. and, yeah. and they, they assumed that I needed Braille, which in this case I didn't. Yes. Uh, you know, Sharon, you mentioned patient portholes. They're awful. Well, the one I have is not horrible. Especially inaccessibility-wise for blind people no, with screen no, no. readers. No, the no, some I Actually, have, some are accessible. Believe it some or are accessible, and the one I have is pretty good. I've got an A. Um, but, and, so and, I, Karen, the one in Boston I have isn't. I don't use them. I tell them, don't send me email. You can, if you do send me a direct, then they won't do it, except one or two doctors. I cannot use those. But I agree with Bob. They're horrible. Mine is. So, so Sharon, I, what I, I, I want, I want to move on, but we I have want one to, minute left, by the way. Oh, we well, then, well, then we, I, I want to get to our last call. Okay, let, let's do that. Uh, Thank Karen, you, Karen. Yeah. Seven, four, seven. Karen, Karen. Yes. Oh, no, Hi, Karen. Oh. Go ahead. I don't know. Thank yes, you, I just wanted to say that I've had several successful experiences. In 2014, I fractured my ankle when I was up in Maine and I had to be operated on this, you know, there's no time to repair. And, um, then I was in rehab, and I found that the most important thing was to, to know as much as you could about what you wanted, to cooperate with the people in the hospital and at rehab, and um, 
I got the people very nice in the hospital. And I was lucky. The people at rehab were very nice and reading menus and um, being supportive. And I was lucky to have somebody as a um, occupational therapist who was partially blind. So she showed me how to do things, made sure I knew how to put the walking boot on, take it off, all that kind of stuff. And I got home in four weeks. But my main point is that when you're in a hospital for any or in to have a procedure done, the most important thing is to know what you want and to um, be as cooperative as possible. Understanding that there's a a, a variable of, of service. Some some are great people and some are not so good, as we've heard today. Right, uh, right. Thank, I've had that, that too. Thank you for thank that. you for that, Karen. We're out of time. It's been a fast show. We have a lot of participation today. I know there are lots of sides to this whole complicated issue, and I'm really grateful for all of you to be here on the program, all of the patients that were here, and Audra, Audrey, rather. Thank yeah. you very much for taking the time to sure. be with us. And by the way, thank you for your service all these years being a nurse. That's most appreciated, that's for sure. Thanks, everyone. Next week, thank we're going you. to be talking about a topic that well, back in November, a blind man from Florida got arrested because police mistook his cane for a gun. We're going to kick that subject around next week. I'm still trying to locate James Hodges, the gentleman who was the uh, victim of this uh, arrest. Uh, that That's a, a, an issue that I'm taking care of. I'm not sure how successful I'll be. But we'll see what happens next Friday. Ray, thank you very much wow. for your contribution. And uh, Peter... Thank you, as always, for being my co-host on In Perspective. And I want to say go safe with God's abundant blessings. I'm Bob Branco. Have a great week, everybody.